Please let yourself relax as you listen. There's a practice of listening to Dharma talks in which you allow the words to come and go and the space of listening becomes really the space of meditation itself. And the words point to something, but they're not really that something. And then the heart and mind resonates to that which is being pointed to. It's a, it is a lovely thing to speak to you at this time in the retreat. Over the past many weeks, we've had instructions and talks on the three characteristics and on the four Brahma-viharas, all the practices of the heart, and on the seven factors of enlightenment, and on aspects of the five spiritual faculties and equanimity and devotion, the nature of mind, and so forth, the five hindrances. And tonight as we rest still in the silence and the depth of the meditation, I'd like to speak about enlightenment and to give a talk that has come in more or less this form, altered a little for tonight, out of a question someone asked several years ago during this two-month retreat in the morning. They raised their hand and said to Anna, is enlightenment a myth? And we all started to smile and laugh at that question. And this talk is partly an answer to that question. When we sit, as we have for this time, with a devotion to wakefulness, presence, openness, the whole sense of our identity and self begins to dissolve. And I begin with a story just to evoke the sense of mystery, although it would be just as easy to take you out and have you as one person was just doing, stand underneath the weeping cherry trees there in the light and just look at them and say, what? How amazing. So this story is from a doctor who collected accounts about organ transplants, in particular heart transplants. And it's the story of David and Glenda who were driving down the road one night in their car in the middle of a marital spat a little bit of an argument. And all of a sudden, the lights on the other side of the road swung wildly and came into their lane. And in a shriek of terror, there was this great crash. And she woke up, and her husband had died. And three years after the accident, Glenda sat with me, the doctor who was writing this story, in a hospital chapel I had arranged a meeting between her and the young man whose life had been saved by the gift of her husband's heart. 
the heart recipient and his mother were almost a half hour late. And I was ready to suggest to Glenda that we leave because these meetings are very sensitive and perhaps they'd change their mind. And as I stood, Glenda said, no, we have to wait. He's here in the hospital. I felt him arrive about 30 minutes ago. I feel my husband's presence. Please, let's wait. Glenda is a practicing family physician, well-versed in bioscience, and as I do, she admires the rigor and healthy skepticism of modern science. Now, however, something transcended this, what science calls common sense, and a new understanding sprang from her lips. David's heart is here, she added. I can't believe I'm even saying it, but I feel it. And in a moment, the door opened and the young man and his mother walked down the center of the chapel. Sorry we're late. We got here half an hour ago, he said in a thick accent. But we couldn't find the chapel in this huge hospital complex. After introductions and an awkward attempt at humor about a heart-to-heart meeting between the young wife and her husband's heart, the usually shy Glenda blurted out, This embarrasses me as much as it must embarrass you. But can I put my hand on your chest and feel his, I mean your heart? The young man looked for a moment, put his hand to his chest, and finally nodded his head. And as Glenda reached forward, he unbuttoned his shirt, took her hand, and gently placed it against his naked chest. Glenda's hand began to tremble. Tears rolled down her cheek. She closed her eyes and whispered, I love you, David. Everything is copacetic. She removed her hand, hugged the young man, and all of us wiped our tears as we sat by the stained glass window. Speaking in a thick Spanish accent, the young man's mother told me, my son uses that word copacetic all the time now. He never used it before he got his new heart. But after his surgery, it was the first thing he said to me when he could talk. I don't know what it means. He said everything was copacetic. It's not a word I know in Spanish. When Glenda overheard us, her eyes widened. She turned toward us and said, that word was our signal that everything is okay. Every time we argued and made up, we would both say everything is copacetic. And this book is full of a whole series of these remarkable and mysterious stories about what happens in heart transplant. So then you have to ask the question, well, duh, who, who am I, you know? <laughs> Are you your heart or your brain or your mind? Or how did you get in here? What is it that took birth in this incarnation? <coughs> And in a deep way, the practice that we enter is to return to this mystery and to touch it, to experience it, because it is who we really are. O nobly born, it says in so many of the Buddhist texts, O you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones of the Buddhas, do not forget who you really are. Remember the clear light, the pure, clear, shining light from which everything in the universe comes, 
to which everything in the universe returns, the original nature of your own heart and mind, the natural state, unmanifest. Let go into this clear light, trust it, merge with it. It is your own true nature, it is home. There is for each of us freedom of the heart, liberation, nirvana, awakening, because we are that. It is our true nature. And in one beautiful text, the Buddha says, the purpose of all this hard work that one might be doing in meditation is not for beautiful states of concentration or stillness or virtue, nor even understanding and insight, but the sure heart's release, this and this alone, this great release, freedom of heart, this and this alone is the purpose of all our practice of the path of liberation. So someone came to the Buddha one day and said, do you teach annihilation? And in response, the Buddha looked back and said, yes, I teach annihilation, but in only one sense. I teach the annihilation of greed, hatred, and delusion, the extinction, the eradication, the ending of that small sense of self that is contracted into greed and hatred or fear and ignorance. And in only this way do I teach annihilation. And in this way there is peace. This is the highest the fading away of all grasping nirvana itself. For enchanted with greed, enraged with anger, blinded by ignorance, we wander through the world, causing the ruin of ourselves and others, mental and physical grief and pain. But if greed and anger and delusion are abandoned, we aim then neither at the ruin of ourselves nor others, but instead live in freedom. And this is nirvana, immediate, visible, inviting, attractive, to be discovered here and now by the wise. And for a disciple thus freed, in whose heart dwells peace, there is nothing to be added to what has been done. And one who has considered all the contrasts on this earth and no more disturbed by whatever arises, a peaceful one, freed from grasping and rage and sorrow, has passed beyond birth and beyond decay. How is this so? Someone came to the Buddha and said in another question, how is it possible to not be seen by the king of death? And so the Buddha answers in another way, speaking of nirvana. He said, for one who takes nothing as self, nothing as I or me or mine, such a one cannot be seen by the king of death. For truly there is a reality that is neither solid nor fluid, heat nor motion, neither this world nor any other world. And this I call neither arising nor passing away, nor standing still, neither foothold nor development, and awakening to all of this independent of changing conditions, 
We touch the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, and from this we understand the liberation of the heart. Two of the ways that enlightenment is spoken of in this tradition come through these texts. One is the freedom from greed and hatred and fear and delusion, the release of the small sense of self grasping so that the natural radiance and love of the heart shines, the absence of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. But the other way, which is equally beautifully described, is a deep shift of identity, shifting from believing we are the small sense of self, letting go of I and me and mine, and resting in the timeless that moves through us, that is who we really are, and no longer are we seen by the king of death. Now one hears these teachings, and is this, you know, the Buddhist way, and is it unique, and are we practicing in such a way that we might come to this? And my experience is that there are a hundred languages for this timeless, for this awakening, and that each of us touches it in our own way. And the Buddhist language tends to be sometimes patriarchal and mental. It's a beautiful language. Um, Here's a more feminine description. This is from the Thunder Perfect Mind, from the Nagamadi Gospels. For I am the first and the last, the honored one and the scorned. I am the mother and the daughter and every part of both. I am the barren one who has borne many sons. I am the bride and the bridegroom, and I am the mother of my father. For I am the incomprehensible silence and the voice whose sound is everywhere, and I am the utterance of my own name. I am knowledge and ignorance, modesty and boldness. I am the joining and the dissolving. I am what lasts and what goes. I am the hearing in everyone's ears and the speech which cannot be heard. Hear me in softness, touch me in roughness. I am she who cries out and I am cast forth on the face of the earth. I am called truth. Give heed then, you hearers, for I am the one who alone exists and does not exist. And there is no one to judge me for I am beyond death. That's from the girl's side of the expression here, right? So sometimes annihilation, end of greed, hatred, and delusion, release of the small sense of self. Sometimes the shift of identity to return to that which is timeless and deathless. When I practiced in India with Nisargadot, my teacher in Bombay, wonderful guru and uh, carrier of the lineage of Advaita, people would ask him, 
all the time about enlightenment and liberation. You're getting old, you know, are you afraid to die? And he would look at them and say, afraid to die? That means you think I'm this body, this meat body, you know, that ate japatis and rice. You think I'm japatis and rice? He would kind of look back and kind of make fun of them. He said, you don't understand. I was never born. I never took this body. This body has nothing to do with me, and neither does the mind. You insult me, sir, <laughs> madam, by such a question. Well, then are you a god? You know, is this like the divine? Are you like, you know, Shiva or Vishnu or Brahma? And he said, oh, the gods, they come and they go when the worlds come and go. They can't touch me. That's just the phenomena of the world where I live. There is only stillness. People would say, well, what is that like? You know? How is it like to live in that place? And do you suffer there? An interesting question, huh? I see you sitting here, someone says, waiting for your lunch to be served, and I wonder whether your uh, consciousness is the same as ours or different. Are you hungry, thirsty, waiting for the meal impatiently as the rest of us do? Or are you in some other state? And he smiled, he laughed so much, he said, I see as you see and hear as you do, taste as you taste. I also feel thirst and hunger and expect my food to be served on time. Indeed, impatience can arise, and when starved or sick, my body and mind go weak. All this I perceive clearly, but somehow I am not in it. I feel myself as if floating over it, aloof and detached. Even not aloof and detached. There's aloofness and detachment as there is thirst or hunger. And there's also the awareness of it all, and a sense of immense distance, as if the body and mind and all that happens to them were somewhere far out on the horizon. There is a screen, clear and empty. The pictures appear and disappear, leaving the screen as empty as before. Well, I ask you a question, and you answer, what happens? And he says, it's just clear and empty. The lips move, the body speaks, but I'm free of all of this. I am neither perceivable nor conceivable. You identify with everything. You say, this I am. I find this impossible. The understanding I am not this or that is so strong that as soon as something arises, there comes a sense I am neither subject nor object. What do you mean? He goes on, look, my thumb touches my forefinger. Both touch and are touched. When attention is on the thumb, and the, the forefinger is the feeler, the self. Here I am feeling myself, and the thumb is short, and it has this rounded end to it in this way. But I shift the focus of attention, and now I'm the thumb feeling this longer, thinner finger. And I am the thumb, and the finger feels different to me. I find that by shifting attention, I become the very thing I look at and experience the consciousness it has. I become the inner witness. I call this capacity of entering other focal points of consciousness love. You can give it any name you like. Love says I am everything. Wisdom says I am nothing. Between these two, my life flows. At any point in time and space, I can be both subject and object. I express it by saying I am both and neither and truly beyond. And in this great dark space, there is only one movement 
the movement of love. So here he is, he gets impatient like you. And he says, yeah, impatience, that has nothing to do with who I really am. Well, which is the real enlightenment then? End of greed, hatred, and delusion? Or the feminine description I read you? Or the shift of identity where none of it's taken as oneself? The great emptiness? From the enlightened heart and mind, there is no one right description. The enlightened heart and mind is like a jewel. And depending which facet we turn, enlightenment is silence. Enlightenment is nothing and emptiness. Dark space, fertile space containing all things. Turn the crystal, enlightenment is radiance and love. Enlightenment is timeless, unborn. Enlightenment is mystery. Enlightenment is suchness. It is beginner's mind. It is non-clinging. It is holiness. And it turns out that the word enlightenment is all wrong because of one letter. It's missing an S. You know, the same for God. The problem is that we have God, and then my Yahweh can beat up your Allah, you know, and on it goes, right? All you have to do is put an S on it, and there's Shiva and Brahma and Krishna and Jesus and Brahma and Yahweh and Allah. And the same is true for enlightenment. It is not a thing or a place, it is the dimension of opening of the enlightened heart and mind. And we all can touch this. When we're invited to practice in the monastery, the first meditation that's given is the question, who are you really? And you're given the 32 parts of the body. Are you your hair, your skin, your nails, your teeth, your organs, your fluids, the muscles, the bones? And you begin to kind of peel them off one after another and inquire, who am I really? And as you do, the mystery that we are all of this and nothing, the small sense of self drops away and the mystery begins to reveal itself. Now sometimes it sounds really far away, but here is Ajahn Buddhadasa, wonderful forest meditation master and teacher. He says of nirvana, the Buddha taught that nirvana is letting go, freedom, coolness, the delight of experience when there is no grasping or resistance to the play of life. Anyone can see if grasping and aversion were with us day and night without ceasing, who could ever stand it? Under these conditions, living things would either die or become insane. Instead, we survive because there are natural periods of coolness, of wholeness and ease. In fact, they last last longer than the fires of our grasping and fear, for it is this that sustains us. We have periods of rest, 
making us refreshed, alive, well. Why don't we feel thankful for this everyday nirvana? So nirvana sounds, when one misunderstands, like it's somewhere far away. And yet Zen Master Suzuki Roshi says, when we realize that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. Somebody asked him about enlightenment, and he said, strictly speaking, there are no enlightened people. There are only enlightened moments. Because the minute there's the person saying, I'm enlightened, it's gone. And the minute there's just the experience of suchness, it's back again. He tells of his own enlightenment, Suzuki Roshi. He said, I was so mixed up, my mind wandering, trying to get things straight. Here he is, the Zen master, just like you. I was not so sure of my mind. Should I practice this way or that? I had so many problems. In Zen, there's the teaching of accepting things as it is, of raising up things as they go. This is the purpose of our practice, but it's difficult to see things as it is. But one day, the master started pointing to the impossibility of repeating experience. You might think you can do so, but that is just thinking about it. And so, I was enlightened. You can't repeat experience. And he laughs. It's not possible. Okay, I understood that what's not possible is to repeat anything. No wonder it was so difficult for me to understand it. I was seeking to hold it. And it was by letting go I had this realization. And since then I've tried to given up trying to be sure of anything. I've just done things because they were good and they were here one moment after another. Beautiful descriptions of enlightenment, vast, immediate, simple, the moments of nirvana here and now. So what leads us to live in an enlightened way, an enlightened life? Virtue, traditionally, concentration, wisdom, sila, samadhi, panya, compassion, loving kindness, letting go, purification, release, a shift of identity from the contracted small sense of self, acceptance of the way things are, an ability to bow, an inner examination of who we are, this small self, who was it that was born into this body? And the more we look, the more we see, as happened around the Buddha, that the greatest number of people were enlightened in the text, not through meditation alone, but in dialogue with the Buddha, looking into this question, are you this body, or feelings, or thoughts, the story that's told? Ajahn Chah, I spoke of the other night, when he went to be with his teacher, Ajahn Man, and he said, I've had all these experiences that jhanas and the samadhi and the dissolution and the pleasure and pain and my mind does this and that. And Ajahn Mana's teacher said, you're looking the wrong direction. Turn your mind around 
and see the one who knows. To whom is this happening? Like the practice in Dzogchen in the Tibetan tradition that's identical of turning the mind back to see who is it that has been sitting and walking and practicing metta and looking at the cherry trees and taking tea and going back to your room and lying down in the bed and waking up and saying, wow, I disappeared for a while, here we are again. The practices that we do of letting go, of purification, of release, of letting be, of compassion, are all ways of this shift of identity from the small sense of self to the great mystery. Then what about enlightenment and stream entry they talk about? Sometimes they say in our tradition that stream entry comes through samadhi practice. You get very, very deeply concentrated in vipassana and you start to see moment to moment everything arising and dissolving, appearing and disappearing. The more quickly that things arise, the more quickly they disappear and things become like quicksand and they become luminous and open and the sense of self starts to dissolve. Sometimes you put your foot on the floor and the floor dissolves and the sense of who you are dissolves and the thoughts I saw that dissolve. And, and it maybe gets frightening for moments and maybe not. And as you let go more and more, there comes to a place of utter stillness beyond the body and mind where all that arises and passes drops away into silence. That's one way. But there's so many other ways. Sometimes it happens in love that gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the heart and compassion, and dissolves into love. And sometimes it's so simple. As around Ajahn Chah, somebody asked him, does stream entry really happen to people these days? Do they get enlightened, at least the first taste of enlightenment? And he laughed. And he said, if you've been here practicing for six months or more, and you haven't entered the stream, you haven't been practicing right. Because the practice that you're doing at first is all the conditioned phenomena of liking and disliking and fearing and enjoying and feeling bad about yourself and feeling good about yourself, entangled in all these. And then in a moment, at some moment, you begin to see that these are the conditioned phenomena of the world, the conditions of sight and sound and taste and smell, the changing conditions of pleasant and unpleasant, of praise and blame, gain and loss, success and failure. And then when you turn attention back to the one who knows, to the pure awareness, instead of resting in the changing conditions, you return to the unconditioned to the pure awareness that is deathless and timeless, unborn, undying. It's not far away. It doesn't take fancy samadhi and special effects on your retreats. I mean, that can happen for some people, he'd say, but that's not necessary either. Just turn your awareness to remember the unconditioned, not the changing conditions, but who is it? What is it that recognizes this? Now come up close and listen. 
When you look carefully, you won't find the merest speck of real mind you can put your finger on and say, this is it. And not finding anything is an incredible find. Friends, in its true nature, mind appears from nothing. It is empty, colorless, formless. It has no beginning and no end. There is no trace. It neither grows nor disappears. It is beyond presence and absence. It neither is born nor dies. And this is your own true nature, intrinsically empty, ceaselessly responsive, naturally radiant. Your own heart and mind is the awakened one. Know this to be true. So people enter the stream in all different ways. Sometimes it's through the gateway of impermanence. We practice, and as we go through our practice, we begin to see, as we get quieter and quieter, the arising and passing of feelings and sensations and sounds and thoughts. In fact, you can get so still that the mind gets silent and you rest as if you rest in the heart and the whole world just becomes a play of vibrations at the heart. The whole world becomes vibrations itself. And from this play of vibrations and emptiness and openness, there comes a resting in that which is beyond impermanence, in that which is the witness of impermanence, the one who knows the dance of arising and passing, that which is timeless and open and free. Or sometimes it comes through suffering and sorrow and the great heart of compassion that we open to the deathless. The fire sermon from the Buddha where he was sitting on Vulture's Peak and at one point says to those around him, everything, O monks and nuns, is burning. And with what is everything burning? The eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind is burning with greed, burning with hatred, burning with ignorance. And we who are awakened, the noble disciple becomes weary of entanglement in the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion at the eye, at the ear, at the nose, at the tongue, at the body and mind and becoming weary of entanglement in these fires, one releases grasping of eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, and the heart becomes free, and one realizes that liberation is at hand. And we do sit with this, you know, Go ahead, light your candles, burn your incense, ring your bells, and call out to the gods, but watch out, because the gods will come, and they will put you on their anvil and fire up the forge and beat you and beat you until they turn brass into pure gold. And you know it in the suffering and purification of the retreat. What happens, just as we sit and things can get more and more empty and impermanent like a river and dissolve and all of a sudden, the changing river is not who we are, but the open space that holds it. So too, 
the awakening of sorrow in this way. One day I was on a retreat in my room looking out at Easter time. This is a nun. And all that was on the wall was the simple crucifix. And then I was overcome by sadness and pain. My body began to ache. I lay on my bed in agony and felt as if I was dying. It was so real. I was taken over and began to weep for the suffering of Jesus and of every being. And then I was Mary holding her crucified child and I knew that the crucifixion wasn't over. I was the starving mothers in Somalia who couldn't feed their children. I was the mother trapped in an earthquake in China, struggling desperately to save her child. I was the young man, all the soldiers in the senseless wars. I was the cows and pigs on the way to the slaughterhouse. I was the modern generals and the Roman soldiers, the welfare mothers and the slum lord, all who would die, all who were in pain. And I lay there watched over by the pain of the world, so much I could hardly bear it, and my heart just wept. And then Jesus was there in my body, and we were holding it together, the sorrows of the world. And I could see that to hold it in mercy is divine. And my heart broke open and changed my life. And when I met the pain, it was no longer my pain, but the pain, the holy pain that opens the heart. This is the divine purpose for our sorrows, to connect our hearts. There is so much mercy, mercy within mercy. And you know it sometimes that the freedom from self opens the freedom from grief and despair and disappointment and pain and war and racism opens when we know it in the heart and the great compassion that is our true nature awakens. Sometimes it comes through sorrow. Sometimes freedom comes through emptiness, blessed emptiness. You walk out there in the courtyard and you put your foot down and there's realization that nobody did it. It was just the foot, you know, and the noting or the awareness of it and the thought and nothing else. And it appeared and it disappeared wherever it came from. You sit and notice thoughts come and there's no trace when they're gone. Where did they go? And more and more the sense of emptiness opens in you. As the Buddha says, Suppose a man or woman who was not blind beheld the bubbles on the Ganges as they floated along, and after careful examination they would appear empty, unreal, insubstantial. In the same way does the practitioner experience the bodily phenomena, feelings, perceptions, thoughts, states of consciousness, and examining them deeply, they appear insubstantial, empty, void of substance, free of self. And this emptiness opens and opens. And it's dreamlike. You sit and there's this great sitting and you sit and there's this terrible sitting and there's this you sit and there's this wonderful inspiration and you sit and something else comes. And where did it go? What happened to it? What happened to your childhood? Oh, I know some of you are still carrying it. <laughs> but it's not really here anymore. Mm. 
One day, I wiped out all notions from my mind. I gave up my desires. I discarded the words that I thought, and I stayed in a deep silence. It felt a little queer, as if I was being carried into a new world or touching something unknown, and then, oh, I lost the boundary of my body. I had skin, of course, but I felt as if I was standing in the center of the cosmos. I spoke, but my words lost their meaning. I saw people coming toward me, but all were the same person. All were me. I'd never known this world. I believed that I was created, but now I've changed my opinion. I was never created. I am the cosmos, and who I thought I was never really existed. Okay, you listen to all this stuff, this holiness, this emptiness, and you say, damn, didn't happen to me, you know. Or maybe it did for a moment, but now it's gone. How do I get this? I want this. Sorrow, compassion, love, emptiness, impermanence. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way either. Sometimes you just sit. The gateless gate. Someone went to the master and said, how can I be liberated? And the master looked back and said, whoever has put you in bondage. A story for you. Find the right story here. I was interviewing people about their meditation experiences, teachers. And this one wonderful friend said, here I am. A teacher for hundreds of students some who experience powerful awakenings, but this hasn't been my way. For a long time, this was the hardest thing to accept, that nothing happened. I'm not a person with big dramatic experiences. For 30 years now, it's simply been a process of practicing without being caught by ideas of discouragement or success. I'd go on for months of intensive training, and no spectacular experience would happen. This was especially hard for the first 10 years, but at least I never got trapped into believing I was a special person. Yet somehow something did change. What transformed me were the endless hours of mindfulness, of giving a caring attention to what I was doing. I learned that the inner dropping of burdens was not gonna happen all in one piece, but moment by moment, I dropped the burden of judgments, of fear, of distrust of myself, of tightness of body and mind. At some point I discovered how automatically tightness and grasping could come, and with that realization I started letting go, finding an ease, appreciating life. And the teachings became clear that in reality there is neither coming nor going, that from the ground of being nothing ever happens. Seeing this is like a confirmation of what I knew in my heart. I became less serious, less concerned about myself. My kindness began to deepen. Oddly enough, my friends tell me I've become more like myself. They say there's been a very big change in me, but it wasn't produced by any special event. I guess it's just the fruit of being present and loving over and over. It's that simple.
So all these different ways, and all are a shift of identity, a freeing of the heart to joy, to natural love, a release of the illusion of small sense of self and grasping. Now what's beautiful, because we do interviews with you over these two months, is to see how you change. And you can't necessarily see it from the inside. First of all, you all look a lot younger. I mean, we could market this stuff in Hollywood, I gotta tell you, and it's beautiful. And secondly, each of you is more free. No matter how deep the grief and loneliness and pain, how busy the mind or anxiety, we see in each of you moments and periods of spaciousness, of non-judgment, of not resisting, of an opening to the reality that is beyond the body of fear, the small sense of self. And it shines more and more in you. And it is a treasure. It is the treasure of your life. So when Anna was asked, is enlightenment a myth? And we all just laughed. We see it. It's so visible in you. And then someone would say, you know, well, how does this happen? How have you seen it? What is this in this lineage? You know, I started to think about it as I was writing this talk. And we had this conversation about seeing enlightenment in so many different forms in our teachers, the privilege of it. Maybe I'll tell a few of those stories. Deepama, this amazing, wonderful woman in India who was the teacher for Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, myself and others, whose dharma was the embodiment of dedication and love. She started to practice when two of her three children had died, and then her husband died. And she got sick for a year. She didn't get out of bed. The grief was so great. And someone said, you're going to die. You have to go to the monastery. She was so in so much pain and suffering that she had to crawl up the steps of the temple to get her instructions. But it also gave her a great resolve. All right, if this is really going to teach me about this world of suffering and freedom, I have to do it. And she became this great yogi, as most of you have heard about her. And we would take teachings from her. And I remember going to visit her once in Calcutta when I was having a really hard time. I was a younger teacher then and going through my own insecurities and various kinds of difficulties. And I went and took some teachings with her. It was summer, hot day in Calcutta. And spent a few days with her, and then I was going to fly to Thailand, go back to a monastery there. And she said, you know, you're having such a hard time, you need a blessing. And she would do these beautiful blessings. She took me, said, come here before you go to the airport. Let me do a blessing. And she held my head for a while, and then she rubbed her hands over my hair, stroked my face, shoulders and chest, kind of my whole body. And while she was doing it, she was doing prayers, maybe happy and peaceful, and doing this kind of metta, sometimes just sort of shh, this kind of beautiful kind of charming blessing over and over and over again. And as she was doing it, I'm standing there, and first not feeling anything, and it's going on and on. And pretty soon I start to feel really stoned, like, oh, this is really... I mean, you know, it's nice when somebody loves on your whole body, up and down. 
and she did it and did it, you know, 15 minutes, it's a long time. She gave me this big hug at the end, the Bengalis hug, they're not like, you know, distant. That part of India, they really know how to hug you. And she said, okay, go, your teaching will be all right now. So I get in the taxi, and it's an hour and a half through crowded Calcutta streets, cows and horns honking, and it's the hot season, and it's smelly, and whatever, so forth, and I'm just grinning. Right, and I get to the airport, Dum Dum Airport, it's called in Calcutta, it is. And the plane is late. It's always late in India, right? And I'm waiting in the heat in Dum Dum Airport, and I'm grinning. And finally I get on the plane, and we fly to Burma, and fly to Bangkok, you know, and it's hours later, and I go through customs in Thailand, and I'm grinning. And then I get in the taxi, and it's two hours through Bangkok traffic, or three hours to get to my hotel. And I get checking in my hotel, and I'm just, just standing there grinning. <laughs> it lasted like two days. This was a... I think she realized I needed it, you know, somewhere really deep inside. Amachi, wonderful guru from South India, the hugging guru, she'll come. And she does the same thing. She goes into a trance. She puts on the, the you know, the robes of the Divine Mother, of the Goddess herself. And then she'll sit for the whole night and put 2,000 people one at a time in her lap and just love them, one at a time. 2,000 people, you line up, how many, how many do you need a hug? It's okay, the Divine Mother is here for you. I mean, that's one way enlightenment manifests. You know, or sometimes it's Tibetan Lamas like Kalarumbache or Karmapa. I used to be with the 16th Karmapa. And at first, you know, I first met him when he, got off the plane, came to this country, and someone said, you've got to see this guy. And so I'm get off the plane, and I said to myself, oh, it's another fat monk. You know, a little, like I've seen a lot of chubby monks, and that's all right. And I hope he's a nice guy. But a little like I wasn't really so. And he came, and I bowed to him, and he took my head and pushed it down on the floor for a while, I think, as if maybe he'd heard that comment. Who knows? Anyway. <laughs> And I got up, and he smiled at me, this beautiful smile. And I walked away, and I got about 20 feet away, and all of a sudden I felt like I'd gone to Alaska. I was so cold, and I realized that being around him was this just huge, radiant heart of love. And I just wanted to go back and hold on to his ropes. And then he would do his black hat ceremony and put on the crown and become the bodhisattva of infinite compassion for the world, and tears would roll down his cheeks and do Om Mani Padme Hum for the sorrows of the world, and then put the crown back in the box and become this big baby again. Playful, powerful, love, dedication. Mahasi Sayadaw, our teacher, who we brought here, he was mostly empty. There was simply nobody there. He would kind of walk by, and it was like the breeze went by. Something would come and go, wind will blow it all away. Just this clear, beautiful empty space, things would come, things would pass, and he was the space between all the things, around all the things. And Ajahn Jamnian, who comes here every year, my teacher from southern Thailand, the forest teacher, if Mahasi's empty, his manifestation of enlightenment is fullness. He's the shaman who wears 25 pounds of medallions and all these kind of shamanic things, you know, and he does exorcisms and works with the chakras and he was a peacemaker and in the war in Thailand and he travels around doing healings and, you know, um, 
and he's practiced metta since he was five years old and was taken by the village shaman and trained. And instead of being empty, he's just like this big butterball of sun that just gives out his energy. And he says, his, this doesn't speak English, his only two words are empty and happy. Empty, empty, happy, happy. Empty, empty, happy, happy. There's this tremendous sense of abundance. You know, and he'll sit there and say, if people come and feed me, wonderful. I get energy to teach Dharma. And if no one brings me food, wonderful. I need to be on a diet anyway. Right? <laughs> and if people want to take, show me the city of San Francisco, I learn about new things, I can teach the Dharma better. And if no one takes me anywhere, for, oh, beautiful, I get to be in silence, I could use that too. And whatever happens, empty, empty, happy, happy. <laughs> So there's emptiness of Masi Saito and the fullness of Ajahn Jamyin. Or maybe there's the mindfulness of Thich Nhat Hanh. Here we are sitting on this hillside where the turkeys are. You know, Thich Nhat Hanh comes in, there's two or three thousand people here at Spirit Rock, and they're all meditating and listening to the bell and doing their practice. He isn't there yet. Everybody's sort of the warm-up act like the Grateful Dead. You know, they put the kind of um, junior bands on first, right? The kind of... So they come in, and there's some teachings and so forth, but everybody's waiting, waiting for Thich Nhat Hanh. And all of a sudden, after a couple of hours of sitting and walking and teachings and so forth, Thich Nhat Hanh starts walking up the road from like where the gratitude hut is. And he walks so mindfully that you can feel it in his steps. It's like everybody looks, and there he is. And his quality of mindfulness and presence is so deep and still, that the whole 2,500 people just go, and kind of sink into a presence of this moment, this eternal moment, nothing else. And he comes up to the podium, and then he smiles, his little half-smile, rings the bell, you know, are you being mindful? And he doesn't even have to ask. Everybody's just, whoa, yeah, we're in it, thank you. You know, this wonderful space of just mindfulness. And it's how he ties his shoes. It's how he holds a cup of tea. And then there's the Dalai Lama, who's different from that. He laughs, compassionate. Um, and every morning when he wakes, let's see if I can find the prayer that he makes. He visualizes the Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara, takes the vows. May I be a guard for those who need protection, a guide for those on the road. May I be a boat, a raft, a bridge, an aisle for those who need lamp, landfall, a lamp for those who need light. May I be food for those who are hungry and medicine for those who are sick. May I be the wishing jewel and the vase of plenty and the tree of miracles. And as long as all beings endure, may I be the ground and vessel for their life, like the great earth endures. For every single being that lives, may I be their sustenance until all beings awaken beyond suffering. I mean, that's a serious vow to take every morning. May I be that for every being. And the, the cool thing is that he does it. 
you know, that you hang out with the Dalai Lama and spend time with him. And as he moves through the day, he meets each person with as much intimacy and care and respect as anybody that I've seen. It's really beautiful. When he was here teaching a few years ago, um, the Secret Service got really excited. The woman who was running the Secret Service detail um, was a sort of tough old woman in her 50s who had done Prince Charles and the Emperor of Japan, you know, and the uh, Italian Prime Minister all, you know, the month before. So she was just doing the Secret Service thing. And there were all these kind of buff Secret Service agents and young men and women. Um, and she said, I've seen a lot of these guys. She said, but really, we all want our picture taken with the Dalai Lama. <laughs> He's different than all the rest of them, you know. And so at the end, they all got together, and would he sign their pictures, and they're all standing out there, and there's the Dalai Lama, and the whole Secret Service contingent is grinning, you know. And then he went back to teach in the hotel in San Francisco um, to stay there, and he had these meetings and so forth. I think it was the Fairmont. And at the end of his stay of several days, before he left, he asked the manager to bring out all the people who worked at the hotel. So the people who sweep the floors at night, you know, and the ones down in the kitchen who are doing the dishes and the ones who are making the beds upstairs, the, you know, all the unseen people in this fancy hotel. And they all came and lined the curved driveway. And then he went down and he thanked everybody one at a time and blessed them. And you know, when he blesses somebody, he doesn't just do it for a moment and then turn to the next one. The thing that's so beautiful is that he lingers for that extra few seconds to make sure that you really know that he was there with you. So here's the Dalai Lama as the Bodhisattva of compassion. Or Ajahn Chah, who was different. He was wise, the laughter of the wise. He would sit there and the ministers would come and generals would come and rice farmers and grieving mothers and every kind of people would come. And he would sit in the place of wisdom and look and say, are you suffering? Hmm, must be attached. Huh, interesting. And then he would laugh about it, you know. It's like we were, when we brought him to teach in IMS in our center in Massachusetts. Beautiful walking meditation on the front lawn. And um, we went out for walking meditation. He was very impressed by the sincerity of Western practitioners. That these are really, you people really practice in the West. I have to tell the monks back there, you know, you, you do it better. He said, but then he wandered around and he looked and he said, but you know, all these people, it sort of looks like a hospital, doesn't it? He said, so strange, he said. Um, it's like they're all coming here, you know, with their sicknesses. And so we walk up to people uh, on the lawn, he'd look at them and he'd say, I hope you get well soon, you know, I hope you get well soon. What his teaching was, is to see the way things are, and to let go into this truth, and rest in the unborn, rest in the undying, rest in that which is awake in the midst of it all. 
So all these different beautiful forms of enlightenment from Amici or Deepamala, Ajahn Chah or the Dalai Lama. And you hear these and you say, okay, I want this. I want to be enlightened. How do I find it? Where should I go? What should I do? Mahasi Sayadaw would just say, sit and be aware moment to moment of all things arising and passing away and let the whole sense of self dissolve. And Karmapa would say, bow a hundred thousand times and visualize the possibility of the Buddha of compassion within yourself. Take it within yourself and live in this way. See who it is that bows. And Ajahn Chah would say, just let go, as someone said the other night from him, if you let go a little bit, you'll be a little happy. If you let go a lot, you'll be happy a lot. If you let go completely, you'll be truly peaceful. That's all. And the Dalai Lama might say, offer your life in compassion. And Thich Nhat Hanh would say, rest in the reality of the present. Simply rest moment by moment here where things appear and disappear. Rest in this eternal present. And Deepamala would say, dedicate yourself to love. Dedication and love. And Ajahn Jamnian would say, empty, empty, happy, happy. <laughs> Be happy. You are what you seek. Suzuki Roshi would say, you are what you seek. And the only difficulty is that you want to be something or someplace where you are not. A woman told Suzuki Roshi she found it difficult to mix Zen practice with the demands of being a householder. I feel like I'm trying to climb a ladder, but for every step upward I slip backward two steps. Forget the ladder, Suzuki Roshi told her. When you awaken, everything is right here on the ground where you are. You are it. Instead of waiting for the bus, realize that you're on the bus. Or Punja, wonderful meditation master in India like Nisargadot, who said, let go of seeking, let go of the seeker. You, the richest person in the world, have been going around looking for something when there's a jewel that's been sewn into your robe from when you were born. You're the richest person in the world. You don't have to go anywhere. Enlightenment is nowhere else but here and now, in your own being, in your own heart. So when Ramana Maharshi was about to die, and all those around him were weeping and saying, Oh, please don't leave us. Please don't leave us. And he looked back as if puzzled and said, But where could I go? Wherever could I go? There is a mystery of being born into this body and mind. And what is born in this body and mind is that which you are seeking, is the eternal. It is the timeless, it is the one mind, it is your true nature. O oh, nobly born, remember who you really are. Rest in your awareness, trust it, 
return to this freedom that you have found. It is always here. For if it were not possible to free the heart, said the Buddha, I would not teach you to do so. But just because it is possible for you to free the heart from entanglement and greed and fear and hatred and delusion, just because it is possible to do so, there arises the teachings of liberation, and they are offered to you. That's it for a moment. nobly born, you have each tasted freedom and liberation. It is your own true nature. It is home. Trust it. Rest in it. Remember it. Return to this freedom over and over. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.